Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. And I'm Max Zarian. And today we're happy to welcome back uh, a guest that may be, who may be familiar to some of our listeners, um, Dr. Irvin Jamil Shik. Uh, we're broadcasting today in Istanbul with one of the most fabulous views uh, of the Istanbul waterways that I have ever encountered. So we're sorry that our listening audience can't be here in person. Um, but th- we think that the the subject of our discussion today will um, be almost as wonderful and fascinating as this view. Uh, and so we're here today to talk about a new project of Irvin's, um, which is uh, an erotic vocabulary of the of Ottoman literature. Um, so maybe we could just ask you, Irvin, to describe the project a little bit. Um, what is sort of the scope of it? Who's working on it? Um, what is it about? Sure. Um, so this is a three-person project. Um, there is Helga Anatofer, uh, who teaches at University of Chicago. Uh, there is um, Ipe Kuner Jola, uh, who is a graduate student, a doctoral student at the University of Chicago. And there is myself. Um, and uh, this came about... Um, originally, as an article, um, we began to write an article for a special issue of a certain Turkish studies journal that shall go unnamed. Um, and um, it, this was for a special issue that Edith Ambrose was um, editing, guest editing. Um, and that special issue fell through. And so we decided, well, Rather than publishing something uh, incomplete as we were planning to, uh, we'll just wait another year or two and publish it in book form. So what is it? It's a dictionary of Ottoman erotic language. Um, everybody knows, um, everybody who has any interest in, in, uh, in the Middle East uh, knows, for example, about the Perfume Garden, um, right? Nefsawi's book. Um, which has terms for everything, um, uh, many, many different kinds, uh, forms of sexual organs, positions, and so forth. Uh, and the question that, that I basically, that occurred to me at some point was, well, okay, so Arabic is really rich. Uh, what about Ottoman Turkish? And frankly, I had no idea that it was as rich as it has turned out to be. I, I didn't expect anything like it. Um, so what we've been doing is we've been um, uh, scanning liter- Ottoman literature um, we have uh, more or less subdivided the Otto- uh, Ottoman literature into three. Um, there is uh, Helga's uh, uh, main interest in life is early Anatolian Turkish. So she's looking mostly at those sources, not exclusively, but mostly. Um, Ipek is writing her doctoral thesis on Jenani and, and uh, Sabit and people like that. So she's looking at that sort of literature. And um, I am looking at the 18th century uh, as well as bona fide erotic um, sources um, like, um, let's say, Ruju Shehila Sabah and, and uh, books like that. And uh, we just go through them and pick up the, uh, the dirty words and uh, try to figure out what they mean. Well, this sounds like one of the most fun research projects I think I've heard about, you know, going through a variety of kinds of sources, it sounds like, and, and picking out the dirty words and trying to figure out what they mean and how they fit together. Um, one question that, that I had about, about sort of the process of the project is, um, how do you know, I mean, obviously, there are some terms that are quite explicit, right? It's quite clear that they are relating to, you know, sexual intercourse, to body parts, to certain acts. But there must also be moments when you encounter metaphor 
or, um, you know, a setup, a plot, a joke? How do you, so how do you know when you encounter the erotic in a, in a, in a text? How do you decide? Okay, well, that's actually an extremely good question because we had to, first of all, figure out what is the scope of this, of this dictionary. Uh, in other words, when we say erotic literature or erotic language, what do we mean? That was a difficult question to answer because um, when you look at, for example, some of these erotic works, they are basically medical works, right? They, they talk about aphrodisiacs, they talk about all sorts of things, uh, and they also tell you dirty stories and they also tell you all kinds of things like that. So eventually we decided that it would be silly and, and counterproductive to try and define what erotic literature is specifically. So we, our uh, distinction was between lyrical poetry and erotic poetry. That is easier to make. But once you've made that distinction, whether the erotic poetry is medical or, for example, um, satirical, uh, or simply, um, you know, just, uh, you know, sexually explicit, uh, you know, pornographic, whatever, we decided not to distinguish among those. So is the difference between lyrical and erotic poetry a difference of content uh, in that they describe or discuss different kinds of scenarios, or, or is it a different difference in actually in the language used, or um, how do you make the distinction? Uh, well, let, let us say that it's uh, lyrical poetry is less explicit. I mean, they will talk about the stature of the woman and her eyes and, and her lips. They're not going to talk about her breasts and her, and her buttocks, you know, the, or um, they might talk about embracing but not necessarily sexual intercourse, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and um, what you said is, is, is very, very true. There, there have been several cases where we were stumped. Um, we, there was a word that, that seemed to be something that we should be interested in, but we had no idea what it meant. And the reason for that is that a lot of these sources, a lot of the erotic sources, um, maybe not poetry, but uh, the, the prose sources, are translated from Arabic um, or from, Persia, from Arabic via Persian, and even those uh, many, uh, many times come from India originally. And so you have terms there that, that the scribe, the Ottoman scribe, didn't mm. understand. So it's sort of a heteroglossia almost. I mean, yeah, you're calling yeah. in kinds of not only different terms, but also different erotic universes potentially. Absolutely, and when when you're uh, when you're um, you know confronted with these things, what we had to do was we would look at the word. Sometimes you'd have three, four, five different spellings, and we would try to figure out okay, what could the Arabic root of this be? And uh, looking at the context, let's say if it's talking about penetration, we might look at okay, you know, go through lane and figure out all the different uh, uh, Arabic words for penetration and try to see. Um, if we could figure out, you know, what the, the, the uncorrupted word was. And most of the time we were successful and sometimes we were not. Can you give us an example of a word, maybe one of the ones that stumped you, if you remember? Um, so, for example, um, in one of the texts, uh, there was a word, shagra. Uh, uh, so it's a shin, rain, uh, ra, and tamar buta, or he. Um, and this didn't sound like anything we knew, and we had to look around, and we found different spellings in different uh, uh, manuscripts. For example, in one case, instead of a rain, there was a qaf. Um, you know, which is it's it's easy to to make that mistake as you're when you're copying a, a, a manuscript, and this one ended not in a he but in an elif. 
Um, well, um, after you know, looking for a while, we found in Lane, uh, Lane's Arabic lexicon remains uh, a, really a, a wonderful treasure. Um, we found, for example, that Shufrul Ferj and Shufrul Mer'e mean the Labia Majora. And so we were able to also, we, we found that uh, there were related words like shafira, uh, for example, which means a woman who gets great pleasure from sexual intercourse. And so we figured out uh, also from the context that what it really meant was essentially a lustful woman. Okay, so, I mean, f uh, you know, the context sort of hinted at that, but we couldn't be sure until we had to dig and find the root and find the words in, in the, in the cl you know, classical dictionaries. So, with words like these, do you find many instances later on, or do you find that it's tough to find more than a couple cases, or do you find sometimes just an isolated case of... Well, say for this word. I mean, like all language, um, erotic words also change over time, of mm -hmm. course. And um, I might mention that um, uh, Helga made an interesting observation at one point, which is that the words that you hear in the street today, you will also find in the 14th century. Right. So the the really rude, you know, Turkish street words have been continuously in use for several centuries. However, uh, words like the one I just mentioned, words of Arabic or Persian origin, t tend to come and go. Uh, and we haven't yet managed, you know, we haven't covered enough literature to be able to do a diachronic analysis and figure out when words came in and when they went out. For now, we are just collecting the words. Uh, so therefore, uh, you're right, sometimes we are not able to find many instances of the same word. But um, when, you when you use words, uh, when you look at words, even if you see only one or two uses, um, you can trust them as, you know, real words, as opposed to if it's a, a metaphor, an imagery. Well, that could be just one writer's fancy and right. uh, not necessarily part of language. So you have to be very careful with those sorts of things, with the metaphors and the, and the imagery, of which, by the way, there are wonder, you know, many, many wonderful examples. I'm sure many authors um, taking a lot of poetic license. Yes, I mean, we, we have uh, several areas, um, you know, of, of uh, we, we're classifying it uh, into several groups. There are war metaphors, there are hunting metaphors, there are food metaphors, there are animal metaphors. Um, and it's, it's remarkable that some of them really do recur and some absolutely are unique. Got it. So another question I had was the sort of contexts of the texts that you were all looking at. Um, like sort of in what places or among what audiences did these terms emerge and circulate? Were these texts that were texts for sale or were they produced for private patrons? Were they taboo at the time when they were published or were they more casually or mainstream? You know, it's people who are not historians, sort of the person in the street, generally has a has an, a vision of history as a straight line, right? So if uh, society today is more permissive than it was 30 years ago, then 50 years ago it must have been even less permissive and 300 even less so. And that's simply not the case. We, When you look at history, you see that things come and go. Um, for example, Ottoman society was quite permissive in the 16th century, um, not at all so in the 17th, much more permissive in the 18th. 
Um, so things really do come and go a lot. Um, there is, uh, I'll give you an example. There is a, a copy of Hamsei Atai at the uh, Topkapi Museum Library uh, where all the dirty parts have been uh, rubbed out. So clearly this manuscript was originally made for, for, uh, for court, the court, and somebody enjoyed it for a while, but then somebody came and said, what, what is this outrageous thing, and, and got rid of all the compromising aspects. Um, what is interesting about some of these sources is that when you look at who wrote them, um, you find that they're very serious, respectable people. Uh, for instance, uh, Ruju Sheikh is uh, uh, attributed by Haji um, Halifa, uh, by uh, you know Kiatib Chelebi, uh, to Ibn Kemal Pasha, who was uh, Selim the uh, Yavuz Sultan Selim's uh, Sheikhul Islam. Uh, but even if that attribution is wrong, as uh, it has been challenged, um, the one of the tra- uh, most important translations of that work into Ottoman is by uh, Mustafa Ali of, of Gallipoli. Now, you know, he was like the intellectual of his age. Uh, he was, uh, you know, certainly religiously, you know, impeccable and all of that. And yet he translated this completely pornographic work. Uh, he did it for the palace. It was a commission. We know that many of these works were actually commissioned by sultans, often for the crown prince, for his education. Um, and when you look at the, the books, they usually in the Sebebi Telif, you know, the explanation of why the book was written, you find some apologistic uh, things like, you know, the prophet said to be fruitful and multiply, and so I'm trying to, to uh, help mm. people, you know, become more lustful so that they, they will multiply, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but, but the fact is, uh, our view of what is and isn't Ayub, uh, you know, mm. in Turkish, what shameful. is it? Yeah. Shameful. Um, has changed a lot. And uh, clearly these things were not considered shameful at certain periods of history. That's really interesting. And I hope that, you know, as the project continues, you can maybe develop some some theories or some ideas about why, you know, certain kinds of things become become more or less tab- taboo in in, uh, in different moments. Um, but what what you just said made me made me think of another another question that I had, which is that, you know, it sounds like many of the authors of the texts that you work on, which are 18th century texts, um, are prominent male intellectuals or, um, you know, go- you know, government appointees at high levels. Um, so I guess I, I wanted to ask, you know, from your research, how, what can you say about the way that erotic language was gendered and classed? I mean, who got to use it um, in these texts? Who read it? Who encountered it? Well, um, who read it is, is a difficult question to always. answer. Um, always, because we often don't know. Um, we do know that there are, uh, in some cases, very many copies of certain texts. So there was a demand, clearly, but who was the demand, we don't know. Um, as far as, as the genders, though, um, I think what, what I have learned from, from this literature that we've been looking at is that our, we have to revise, first of all, uh, a lot of our views that we have from, from today. Uh, for example, now, um, uh, you know, well, okay, some people, many people uh, now talk about um, gender as a continuum and so forth, but even so, um, there is this view of gender as essentially a dichotomy, male or female. Um, when you look at Ottoman classical literature, you find that there are essentially three genders. Uh, there is men, there is women, and there is boys. 
as these are distinct genders. Boys are not female substitutes. They are not like women in any shape or form. They are boys. It's a completely different gender. Furthermore, boys grow up to be men. Therefore, genders are fluid. Therefore, you can go from one gender to another. So a lot... Um, when we look at sexuality, for example, uh, today we uh, tend to think about, well, you know, um, uh, who are the partners? Is it man to man? Is it man to woman? Is it woman to woman? Whatever. Um, in those days, that's not the way it's, it's looked at. It's the, the main division is along the lines of who penetrates and who is penetrated. Uh, that is much more important than whom you penetrate or, or who penetrates you. And so, um, you know, we, we really have to avoid presentism as much as possible and look at these texts and try to figure out their own context. I mean, this is the question that you asked, of course, and this is what we're trying to do. That's fascinating. And it, re it reminds me of the work of Afsana Najmabadi on Iran, where she, you know, she looked at visual art um, from the 18th century uh, in Iran and, and found a similar thing that, um, you know, the kind of relationships of desire that were figured in those paintings um, were operated along very different axes than mm -hmm. we now think about um, sort of heteronormative man-woman um, gender and sexuality. So um, maybe that's an opportunity to, to sort of ask you to speculate a little bit on two fronts. First of all, do you think that, I mean, just thinking about Najmabadi's work and what you just said gives me the sense that maybe there was kind of um, a shared erotic universe or worlds uh, that was perhaps shared between Iran and, you know, the Ottoman Empire, um, or at least that there was a lot of overlap and cross-pollination. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. I'm uh, familiar with and, and a great admirer of Efsane's work. Um, and um, uh, a lot of, uh, I mean, you know that in the, in the 19th century, uh, generally Ottoman literature, Ottoman art, were viewed as essentially imitative and mm. uh, poor copies of, of their Persian um, equivalents. That's not the case, I think, but it is certainly true that there is a great deal of overlap. And um, you, you find, for example, uh, let, I'll give you an example. There is a... Um, manuscript by the name of Tufei Mutehilin, so it's a gift for the married people, um, and it's a, it's a sex, sex manual. Um, and uh, this was published a few years ago in Turkish translation, and everybody was very happy um, to, to have access to it. And the text says that it's, uh, it's a translation into Ottoman from a Persian original by Sheizari. Well, yes, there is such a Persian original, except that a lot of the text is identical to certain Arabic sources. So probably Shezari did not actually write it in Persian, but adapted it. Like in those days, uh, translation was mostly adaptation rather than pure translation. So he probably took an Arabic uh, original, added some of his own stuff, and then somebody else took that and added his own stuff. Um, and so uh, the, the, no the whole notion of authorship um, becomes extremely difficult to establish, and therefore the nationality mm. or the, the or origin of the author is even more impossible. I mean, that's really fascinating because my, you know, my my sort of superficial understanding of of also Arabic literature and letters in the sort of pre-modern moment is that actually copying what we would think of as you know physically copying a text um, and or you know translating it was actually considered a very high, if not the highest form of intellectual production, you know, the focus on the original text um, and the sort of critique that something is derivative is actually 
uh, quite a recent phenomenon. Sure, this is completely modern. The whole idea of originality of the author as this uh, single genius who is, you know, creating stuff in, in solitude. This is totally bourgeois art philosophy. This is, uh, you know, 19th century uh, stuff. And um, this has been slowly eroding uh, in our day, because if you uh, think about the postmodern turn, um, you think about all the pastiches that, that the postmodern art and literature have and all of that, you begin to, to see that, in fact, art and literature are being viewed more and more as intertextual as opposed to these unique creations of unique individuals as they used to be. And, uh, you know, in the, in the pre-modern or early modern periods, um, art and literature were produced collectively, there is no doubt. I'm curious about the other forms of erotic or artistic knowledge that uh, you've encountered beyond just individual terms. You know, I'm thinking here about visual art or sound or longer text forms like plots or scenes or motifs that you may have noticed uh, in your research. You know, are these texts part of a broader Ottoman erotic world? Um, I would say yes. Um, we, um, well, Tulay Artan of Sabanji University and I wrote something about the changing visual language uh, of the 18th century, um, where w when you look at uh, Ottoman erotic miniatures, you, you do see certain changes uh, starting from, let's say, the 16th century into the 18th and, and beyond. Um, what is interesting is that um, there is this, uh, these, this received idea that Ottoman miniature painting essentially en ended at the beginning of the 18th century, that Levni was the, the final great exponent of, of the art. And what we found is that in the 1790s and even the early 1800s, you have really top-quality miniature painting. Uh, the reason this is unknown is that these are all uh, erotic pictures and art historians tend to look the other way. So I think this is also, uh, you know, this is a, it's a sobering fact because it suggests that, that um, some of the, 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 the opinions, the knowledge that we have now uh, has been colored by this kind of puritanical or, or at least uh, prudish uh, attitudes towards, uh, towards erotic art. Um, in, the, in the 18th century, you do find quite explicit miniatures. Um, once again, I was surprised by how much. Okay, maybe not as much as India, um, but certainly um, it's a very significant amount. And when you look at some of these albums, um, for instance, Tulay and I went to Paris to look at one of the albums, which is in private hands. It has 85 extremely high-quality miniatures in it. Um, and it is probably from the Balkans, um, judging from the style, that's what we thought, uh, maybe from Shumen in Bulgaria or something like that. But it's all in Turkish. The text is all in Turkish, Ottoman Turkish. Um, and when you look at that, it's so accomplished that it's very clear this is not a unique creation. There must have been tens, maybe, of such books that the, the same workshop produced. Maybe only one of them survived, but there certainly must have been many more. Yeah, that's fascinating because it, it reminds us that, um, you know, the, the taboos or the shames of the present or the things that we now find not interesting um, shouldn't prevent us from recognizing when something must have been quite a, a, a sort of a flourishing tradition in its own time. So right, that's, exactly. That seems like right. um, an important, an important note.
Hi, and welcome back to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm here today with my colleague, Matt Gazarian. I'm Susie Ferguson, uh, discussing um, the erotic vocabulary of Ottoman literature with our guest today, Dr. Irvin Jamil Shik. Uh, we've been having a fascinating discussion about the kinds of terms that circulated in Ottoman Turkish um, about sort of sexual matters, uh, erotic imagery. Um, and I, I wanted to turn in, in the second part of our podcast to the question of uh, what studying the vocabulary of Ottoman erotic life can tell us, if anything, about your social life um, in, in Ottoman cities or in the countryside. Or, you know, if you have any examples that you can think of that link this word of words, this world of words to what we might, we might actually be able to know about what's happening in people's lives. Well, uh, one of the things that, that uh, you can tell immediately is uh, the outlook towards, let's say, uh, gender and sexuality. So, for example, um, we are um, very uh, accustomed today to think of a, of a concept like homosexuality. But in fact, of course, this, this, uh, this concept is a very modern one. It was invented in the 19th century in Vienna, uh, not surprisingly. And um, so um, when you look at Ottoman, it's very interesting to note that there is no such term. There is no term that is all-embracing in the sense that it applies to male-male and female-female sexuality. Uh, it applies to active, quote-unquote, versus passive, quote-unquote, uh, partners, and so forth. So um, there are many words for each of these, but there is no single word that embraces them all. So this uh, says something. This says something about how people looked at individuals, how they looked at um, uh, you know, people's sexuality, and so forth. Uh, another example might be how they describe sexuality, um, not as a, an immutable identity, as we tend to look at, uh, at it today, but rather um, as a preference, as a taste, as a matter of taste. It's like, uh, you know, some people like fish, some people like meat. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very subjective thing. There is, uh, it's not who you are, it's what you like to do in life. Um, so, for instance, one of the words that you see um, when they describe uh, the, the person's sexuality is they will say, uh, they'll mention meshreb. Now, meshreb, of course, comes from the Arabic uh, verb to drink, and it says something about your temperament, your likes, your, what, what attracts you, uh, but it doesn't say about what you are deep inside. Um, um, the, an, another example I might give you um, might be, for instance, uh, when you look at the metaphors that people use for, for sexuality, they will use uh, food metaphors, hunting metaphors, uh, military metaphors, and these uh, tell you a lot about life then, about what people ate, what people did, um, how they viewed hunting, what animals they hunted, and, and so forth. So um, these uh, really tell you, I mean, Okay, let me let me uh, make a confession here. Uh, I'm not going to claim that I'm studying these erotic texts um, uh, for any reason other than they're fun. I mean, they, yes, they are fun. I mean, clearly. However, that seems like a great reason to do research. Yeah, I think so too. This is the whole uh, reason we do Ottoman history. <laughs> I mean, it is fun, and I, and and I'm doing it for that reason. But at the same time, you really do learn a great deal from from it. I mean, um, not only do you learn a great deal, but because of prudish attitudes, it has been neglected for too long, and so there really is a great deal more to learn. So I've got a question for you. Just I want to make sure I understood what you said before, which is that someone's sexual preference is sort of described like their drink. Like, I'm a gin and tonic person, <laughs> but you like old fashions. And so it's like, 
onun meşrebi. Right. Wow. Right. That's that's absolutely true. They, they, the words are, for instance, meşreb or matlab, which means your desire, mm-hmm. uh, or mezheb, which is even more interesting, like your, your sect. Sect. Um, so uh, there are words like this, that, but but these are all matters of your opinion, your belief, your preference, as opposed to your nature, as opposed to your genes. So you know? I've got a question, um, and maybe you mentioned before that diachronic analysis is not uh, something you and your colleagues are able to carry out at this state. But I'm just curious, um, you know, in some of my research, I've encountered how in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, ideas of race, ethnicity, or sort of the immutability of uh, your, um, say, your Jewishness, your Armenianness, your Greekness, your even Christianness in some contexts, or your Muslimness, whatever, uh, Uh, become more immutable and the boundaries among these different groups become less permeable. And I'm wondering if uh, in later texts that you and your colleagues may have looked at that you see a correlation also in the way people view sexual preference or if there's in a different time that it correlates with other events going on in the social world. Well, uh, in terms of of, um, uh, the history, the the diachronic analysis, um, We um, study texts from the mid-14th to the mid-19th century. The mid-14th, well, that's kind of clear. We're talking about Ottoman literature, and and, uh, that's where the earlier sources uh, come from. Why the er the mid-19th? Well, that's because the mid-19th begins to see a number of changes, um, uh, largely uh, under Western influence. But you begin to see things like heteronormativity, for example, Um, you know, there are texts that begin to frown upon boy love, whereas previously that was not the case. If In, in earlier texts, what people do frown upon is excess uh, and um, uh, show-off. So if you do something too much or if you do it in the open, uh, then it's kind of, it's in poor taste. But if you, whatever you do in your bedroom, nobody cares about. I mean, that that's, comes across very, very clearly. In the 19th century, starting the sort of middle of the 19th century, that begins to, um, to, to change. And people begin to have opinions about what is right and what is wrong. Um, so uh, in that respect, I think um, you know that's that's something also very important to to, to consider. Um, I think people begin to look at uh, identities uh, as more immutable, as more uh, a, um, um, a, a definition of what you are um, in the in the more modern period and in the earlier periods. Uh, I think it's more what you do than what you are. Do you have any speculations? I mean, I know scholars like Afsana's work that we mentioned before and also the work of Joseph Masad on the sort of um, sex and sexuality, histories of desire in Arabic have speculated that that's partly to do with the sort of um, the coming of a sort of European gaze and mindset to the Middle East or to the the sort of Ottoman world. Um, do Do you agree with that? speculation or do you have other ideas about why this shift that you and Matt are describing might might be going on? Well, I haven't uh, encountered any other reason for this to be happening in the around the mid of the 19th century. Um, for instance, if you look at Vehbi's uh, Chef Genghis, which is 18th century, um, it's very interesting. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a dialogue between a man who is partial to women and a man who is partial to boys. Um, and they uh, each 
uh, defend their own predilection completely on the basis of, of taste. I mean, it's not like what you're doing is wrong, but you know, you fool, you're, you're ignoring the best things in life because what I do is so much more pleasurable. And so they discuss this, you know, why boys are better than women or women are better than boys. Uh, and this goes on and on and on. And then at the very end, they decide uh, that, you know, they are not able to come to a conclusion. So they go to a sage, um, you know, to a, to a um, learned man. And the learned man says, oh, you're all, you know, in the wrong path. You know, true love is God, God, love for God and all of that, and sort of sets them straight. Now, I am convinced that that final part is just to make the, uh, the whole poem palatable to the mm. authorities. Uh, basically, it's very clear. In fact, this poem is the single source from which we derive the most words. Uh, so, you know, it is very clearly written in order to titillate. It's very clearly written as, a, as an erotic work. Uh, and what's interesting is there are no value judgments attached to boy love versus uh, love of women. Um, of course, uh, you notice, and this is not my <laughs> fault, uh, I'm, I'm putting the male at the center, but that's because that's how the literature uh, is. Um, and uh, starting in the 19th century, you really begin to see uh, a change, and that's probably uh, has to do with, with the Western influences. I don't see any other reason. So I'm wondering about the if there were any analogs to today's scandals revolving around the sexual tastes of people of, in important positions of power, that do we have any famous grand viziers or sultans or ministers or whomever who are subject to ridicule or critique because of their sexual taste. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Now, um, uh, one, of the, one of the issues is that um, in, in satirical work, Hijviyeh or, or um, Hezliat and things like that, um, sex- sexualization is very often part of the uh, way of expressing uh, satirical you know attacks and so uh, when they talk about a certain vizier as being you know too fond of this or too fond of that you never quite know if that's for real or they're just trying to insult him you know there's there's that problem because as i said uh, too much of a good thing is considered bad uh, and so it's not that he necessarily sleeps with a boy, but if he sleeps with 20, uh, you know, within one week, well, that's not a good thing, right? Um, so when you see that, uh, again, you're, not, you're never quite sure if it's for real or not. But uh, there is a lot of it. Um, there is, in fact, a very strange uh, little um, lithographic book uh, published in the 19th century, which is a collection of such verses. So he, they collected them from many different poets, um, people like Sururi and, and others. And uh, my God, it's, it's so vulgar that even I blushed, and, and that's not easy you know, for mm-hmm. me to blush. Um, now, on the other hand, for instance, Fuat Pasha, you know, the famous uh, Grand Vizier of the Tanzimat period, mm-hmm. was well known to, to, to be partial to boys. So you know, even as late as the 19th century, we still have this sort of gossip. Was there, I mean, so was there a relationship between um, comments, perhaps in the press or in popular literature about you know, people's sexual preferences and assumptions about their fitness or unfitness for power? Um, Or was this simply a, you know, because I think now, for example, in the Middle East, we find, you know, actually, in fact, everywhere we find, or I find that often hints about homosexuality or um, non-normative sexual practices are often used to kind of undermine or question somebody's fitness for, um, you know, power or influence in other spheres of life. And I'm curious based on, 
you know, what you were saying before about this being a matter of tastes, you know, like the drink you order when you go to a bar, uh, if that's uh, if that's the case in, in, in the Ottoman Empire, if that changes over time? Well, I think once again that it's uh, what, um, if, if people do too much of it in too public a way, then they are considered, you know, unfit. Um, but uh, what you say uh, more precisely uh, reminded me of something that I uh, read in, in uh, Bobovsky's um, description of the palace, where he talks about the eunuchs uh, being uh, assigned to very, very high positions. And he says, which only goes to show that uh, it is not always the most uh, able or most deserving who get these positions. And that makes you wonder whether, you know, I mean, he viewed the penis as an important um, part of managing an empire or what? I mean, why would a a eunuch be uh, unfit for, uh, you know, to to manage the empires? It was never quite clear to me. But I found that to be very funny. That sort of thing I never saw in... uh, in the Turkish example, in quite to the contrary, you had many grand viziers who were hadam, who were castrated. That's really interesting because I think that this would th- this kind of material then provides us a way to kind of think outside of our contemporary assumptions about not just sort of the stakes of non-normative sexuality, but also the relationships between sexual practices, gendered categories, um, which may intersect with both age and also class, presumably. And power, right? So that, you know, we suddenly have to conceive of a world in which, you know, being a woman or being a castrated man or being a man who likes boys um, doesn't, we have to, we can't assume what that tells us about somebody's presumed fitness for a rule, for example. That's very, very true. And and sometimes, um, for, uh, for example, Leslie Pierce pointed out that um, um, age trumps gender in, in, in certain cases, right? So at the harem, the senior woman, the valide, the, the sultan's mother, had a hell of a lot more power than some young uppity prince. You know, so it was not just a matter of male versus female. It had a lot to do with, with other things. And, and, um, and as you said, we cannot assume based upon our, our um, you know, prejudices from today. Um, we cannot assume to understand how people viewed uh, others, uh, you know, in, in, he, historically. Right. So I want to push you on this last point. This is, um, this is something that was kind of on my, on my mind as we've been talking, which is that, you know, as much as we, sh- we clearly can't presume um, that our understandings of sexual identity or of power differentials between different sexual tastes um, were applicable to earlier moments. Uh, I'm curious, you know, to what extent the erotic remains recognizable? I mean, can we assume, for example, that practices that we find erotic today or that we associate um, with, you know, titillation, can we assume, to what extent can we assume that those were also similar um, in earlier times? And and if there's anything in, in your research where you kind of had to stop and say, wait, you know, that looks sexy to me, but I'm not sure that in this context that actually w- was meant to be an erotic statement. Well, um, I mean, eroticism changes just the way humor does. You know, when you yeah. read, uh, you know, medieval uh, funny books, there we we usually find them rather unfunny um, because uh, things really do change. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised. Um, certainly one thing that we have seen, um, and now I'm, I'm coming you know, all the way to the tw- uh, 21st century, um, with, through the internet, is we have seen this proliferation of tiny communities of interest 
that uh, are turned on by something extremely specific um, that most of the rest of us would say, what? You know, but but, uh, but uh, they find each other and they are very, uh, you know, and, and they find that to be um, a very um, uh, important uh, conduit to, to happiness. In fact, um, in the 1960s, this is uh, one of the things that um, these uh, s- certain more progressive sociologists were saying in the 60s is uh, stop looking at certain things as perversions because, in fact, these can be sources of a great deal of happiness if the person is well-adjusted and has uh, consenting partners and so forth. So I think, um, uh, you know, it, it is extremely likely that, that certain things have changed, certain things certainly that were funny or were erotic ones are not anymore and, and vice versa. Um, I couldn't give you an exact ex- example, but for instance, uh, you know, as, a, as something that's slightly surprising, in one of the 1792 or 1793 miniatures in one of the um, uh, manuscripts, uh, there's a woman attached to the ceiling through pulleys. Um, so, well, okay, they were doing that even back then, you know. Right. <laughs> so so I don't, I'm not suggesting there's nothing new under the sun. Of course, things keep changing. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, there's something about, about human nature that uh, That, that persists. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that, you know, um, we'll encourage our listeners to, to keep an eye out for, for the, the book when it comes out so that they can see for themselves, you know, what things perhaps resonate today and what things seem quite far off and foreign um so we want to really thank you for coming on the podcast again it's been a real pleasure to have you and i uh i venture to say that this is a subject that's um perhaps not discussed enough uh in scholarly in scholarly podcasts or venues so so we're really we're really happy to be able to have a conversation um about the erotic vocabulary of the Ottoman Empire. And I should mention also that this episode will be part of an ongoing series that we have at the podcast curated by myself and our friend Sachel Yilmaz um, on women, gender, and sex in the Ottoman Empire. So uh, listeners can also turn to that series to hear other episodes that deal with related issues um, about both gender and sex and sexuality um, and the relationship between them. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And for our listeners who want to find out more, we will post a bibliography for this episode with um, many of the works that we've mentioned today. Uh, And we also encourage you to visit our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you're welcome to leave any comments or questions you may have. Um, We'd also love it if you joined us on Facebook, where we try as best we can to stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners now, as well as to post um, new news about upcoming series and uh, new episodes. So that's all for this episode, and until next time, take care.